Welcome to Curious and Quirky. We believe curious leaders change the world. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone, from wherever you're watching us. Thank you for joining us. I know this is 21st of January, but I must say, wish you a wonderful, successful, and safe new year from all of us here. Before I start, I must welcome two of our two new members to this Curious and Quirky event. First is Ginny. Ginny Ertel is a well-known transformation change specialist, checkered career with GE and other multinational companies. Ginny, welcome. The second person needs also no introduction, which is Ravin Jesutasan. Ravin is a well-known futurist, thought leader, author, part of the CHRA Council at World Economic Forum for Industry 4.0, a very well-accomplished author. His new book, Work Without Jobs, will be coming out shortly by the MIT Press in March this year. So Ravin, welcome on board. As you know, Curious and Quirky, is really about helping leaders who change the world. We believe that curious leaders change the world. And this is the premise of how we bring different business stories to you every single month from the lens of different areas and dimensions of running and managing a business. In this show, you will find this extremely fast-paced. Each speaker has five minutes to go. At the end, we will be happy to take questions. But during the show as well, as you comment on the live stream page, Your comments will get featured on the live stream and our course leaders will be very happy to answer some of them or respond to some of them towards the end of everybody finishing their topics. So with that, again, I always, this is one of the most pleasurable parts of my job is introducing Mary. Mary, all yours. Thank you, Hari. And welcome, everyone. You know, I graduated in managerial economics and at the time it was pretty theoretical. And now as events are unfolding in our economy, and I'm listening to Fed Chairman Jay Powell explain why we are at a 7% inflation rate, it still sounds pretty theoretical. The issue here is is that we're business people and we're trying to make real decisions based on this. So keep in mind that inflation is the rate at which money loses value. Prices go up, purchase power goes down. And it's relative to about 200 categories that span everything from transportation and energy, food, beverage, medical care, education. So it touches pretty much all parts of our lives. What's remarkable is that over the last 30 years, this rate of inflation has been at or below 3%. That's remarkable. What's happening now is now 7%. So my curious and quirky question is, what are companies doing about their pricing strategies to address this higher inflation? So one that caught my eye was CNH Sugar. They recently explained in a Facebook post, in order to keep the cost per bag of sugar low, many retailers are converting their store brand products from a five pound to a four pound bag. 
So in an effort to maintain our affordability, we're decided to do the same with our CNH brand. And the reduction in size, however, is not enough to offset the increase in the remaining four pounds of sugar in the bag. So that's why you're seeing prices going up and the bag price going down. So that's the bag size going down. I think it's interesting that they didn't just grab that pricing lever. They first adjusted their value proposition, trying to keep that unit the good, you know, the bag, fairly affordable, and then communicated the change on Facebook. Another example is a major accounting firm, Grant Thornton, just announced a 10% increase to their clients. And they explained that it's been uh, more difficult to retain their, their good employees, so they've increased salaries. And from what I understand, most clients said that was acceptable as long as they could be reassured that they were able to keep the good quality service and hopefully get their tax returns prepared on time. So um, in this case, they set their price, price that was beyond the 7%. They went to 10%. And they set, made a very rational explanation for it. A third situation is that uh, we've been talking to a lot of B2B companies about increasing their prices. And many of them have said that they haven't yet. And they explained that they're getting a lot of pushback from their sales reps. So um, gaining this internal buy-in is often one of the most difficult parts of a price increase. And in fact, we've measured it in research and we can see that sales reps are more price sensitive than the customers are. So that is an issue. So now what? If you are experiencing inflation or a rise in your supply costs, a couple of questions that you probably want to ask yourself and your team are, what parts of our product or service can we consider reducing or deconstructing? So for example, if you're in medical devices, you may have a part of your offer that are disposables and you might be able to repackage those. Or if you are in the service industry, you might be able to unbundle a portion of your service. Second, if we need to increase the price of our products to protect our margins, how can we do this? How and when? So you may consider matching that inflation rate at 7%, or you may consider increasing it even higher if your industry average is higher. And then when, you can do it all at once, or you can step it up over time. And lastly, how do we manage that communication both internally and externally? You can be very proactive and send out information, or you can be a little reactive, as we, we heard here. So the answer to these really tough questions must start by investigating the market, the customer, and the competitors. What is inflation doing to customer needs? How are they, their needs being reprioritized? What are your competitors doing, if anything? We often find that if you do market research or some price sensitivity studies, that's a form of market research, you're going to get a lot more information about how you can make these kind of decisions. We wish you the best of uh, luck as you make these, uh, these tough decisions around inflation. And now I'm going to introduce my dear friend and colleague, Tom Spitali. Tom? Thanks, Mary. The American Football Super Bowl is coming up on February the 13th. And I'm a sports fan, so I'm really looking forward to the game. But as a marketer, I'm also looking forward to the famous advertising wars that happened during the Super Bowl. I want to see how that plays out. Did you know? that one of the most successful ad campaigns in Super Bowl history never ran on the air during the game. A couple of years ago, the Swedish automaker Volvo 
got the word out via social media that every time one of their competitors, another car company, ran an expensive ad during the game, that you could tweet the name of a loved one or family member directly to Volvo, and they would enter them into a contest to win a free XC60. It worked amazingly well. It was like Volvo's competitors were funding one long social media conversation between Volvo and their customers while they were running these expensive ads. Volvo reported that they got an average of 2,000 tweets per minute while their competitors' ads were running. And it wasn't just a buzz success. It was also financial success because Volvo reported that sales of their XT60 model almost doubled in the months following the game. We say that Volvo changed the rules of the Super Bowl ad game in their favor. And while most of us will never have in our marketing plans a Super Bowl ad, we can learn some things from Volvo's strategy that might help us to change the rules in our markets and our industries. So the first principle that Volvo followed, we might call it the Hippocratic Oath of Marketing. First, do no harm with your customer service before you even do a campaign. Let me explain. Arizona State University, every couple of years they do a study on customer service and customer satisfaction. They had two interesting findings in their latest report. One is that the state of customer service is as bad in the United States as it's been since they started doing the study. The second thing that they discovered was that the average person is now connected to 865 people in their network. That's about four and a half times more people than before the age of social media. What's this mean? Good news and bad news travels faster than ever. Many companies have a lot of good things, positive word of mouth coming into, say, their word of mouth bucket, but it's leaking out the other end with bad customer service experiences. Volvo, before the campaign started, fixed their leaky bucket of word of mouth. In fact, they've always been fastidious about customer service metrics, customer satisfaction metrics, and their brand image. So when their positive campaign ran, the word of mouth filled the bucket up. It actually overflowed. Volvo received $44 million worth of free publicity from this campaign which is almost as much as the $60 million that all of its competitors combined spent on Super Bowl ads. It's amazing. Second principle that Volvo followed was to, yes, be creative in your campaigns and strategies, but be on message. Here's what I mean by that. Marketers feel today legitimately that they've got to be cute, creative, irreverent to break through the clutter and reach their target markets. However, it's when marketers are inconsistent when they are being cute, creative, and irreverent, when they're being inconsistent with the positive images that people have of their brand or their product, that things go afoul. At best, they seem like they're trying too hard with their campaigns and strategies that are off message. At worst, it sounds like you're being creepy or tone deaf. See, Volvo knows exactly what they own in the minds of customers, and that's safety. And by proxy, they own the image of family protectors. That's why their campaign was so brilliant. It was about tweeting the name of a family member or a loved one to enter them into the contest and win them a car. This consistency with Volvo's brand image also allowed them to be appropriately irreverent and poke fun at their competitors' exorbitant ad spending during the game. 
it worked. It's going to be fun to see if anybody else pulls a Volvo and, and intercepts the Super Bowl during uh, this year's game. But if you, in your business, fix the leaky bucket of your word of mouth and make sure that your messages are creative but on message in your campaigns and your strategies, maybe you'll be the one changing the rules of the game in your favor this year. Enjoy the game. Good luck. And now on to our master of innovation, Matamore. Well, thanks, Tom. I have a, I have a football example too. It's my third, uh, my second example here. I today I want to talk about the intersection of uh, customization, personalization, sustainability, and actually the digitization of the world uh, using electronics, Internet of Things, sensors, etc. Some of the listeners of our podcast may remember that last month I challenged everyone to use the word smart to invent a new product by combining it with a love or an interest, gardening, cooking, whatever. And so the first example I want to share, it's uh, smart or smarter farming. This was uh, one of Time Magazine's uh, inventions of the year. There's a company in Israel, an agritech company in Israel called Supplant, right? Supplant, we get it. And um, they recognize that, you know, drought infected areas obviously have to balance between, you know, conserving water and ensuring crop yields. And so they use, they've used AI logarithms to um, sort of balance four different considerations here. One is obviously the plant needs. The second is the soil moisture. The third is climate condition. And the fourth one, which I think is brilliant, is uh, weather forecasting. So these put these uh, sensors on the plants and around the plants, and from that they can know when to water and how much to water. And so they've done; they've already tested this successfully in Mexico uh, with a mango crop. Yes, with a mango crop, they learned that they could uh, decrease uh, water usage by fifteen percent, and uh, they could cre- increase crop yields by twenty percent. So pretty extraordinary, right? The second example I want to share in this whole world of customization and sustainability and digitalization of the world, this is the football example. There's a company, Vices, they have a a new product. It's a new football helmet. It's called Vices Zero Two Trench. You know, I think they might need some help with the naming, but uh, this is really uh, based on insights. Um, You know, often insights will lead to uh, breakthrough new products. And so one of their insights are learning from their research, offensive and defensive linemen, probably not unexpectedly to the listeners, right? They have two times as many head impacts. I mean, it's tough there on the line, right? And so what they've done is they've designed a helmet specifically for linemen. And uh, these helmets, they're extraordinary. If you, if you watch the video, I mean, this is, this is unbelievably high tech. They have five layers of protection for the for the players. I think what's most interesting is the strongest layer is not on the outside of the helmet, it's more on the inside. On the outside, they have flexible material that allows, it, allows them to absorb the blows easier and spread it around. This, is, uh, this technology has been tested and it's shown to be uh, have the best rating of any helmet that's ever been invented. And now 30 of the 32 NFL teams have put in orders for this helmet. The last one I want to share here is really, as you probably know, the CES Consumer Electronics Show was in Las Vegas a few weeks ago, and they introduced all these amazing technologies. And I looked at them, and the one that, for me, that was the most interesting from an innovation and marketing standpoint was the BMW iX Flow, okay? If you haven't heard of this, it's extraordinary. They, the car, you can, with a push of a button, you can change the car's color. 
right? So it can go from black to white to gray, all right? Now, how do they do that? They use an e-ink, you know, which, is, which we've seen in our electronic devices. The cars are laminated with electrophoretic film. The film contains microcapsules that are the diameter of a human hair. Each capsule contains different colors, white, black, colored particles. And uh, they become visible when an electronic, electric field is applied. So at this point, they have, you know, white, black, and gray. But the scientists tell us that they should be able to get colors at some point. And so this is extraordinary, right? And, I, and it's the thing that I would encourage the curious and quirky listeners to think about is not only this product, but what are the ramifications of it? And so for, for BMW, the ramifications obviously are for supply chain, right? I mean, this may simplify their supply chain, but also maybe you should, they, we should start thinking of services, right? So maybe they have to be aware that repairs might be more expensive. In the car world, we used to have $2 keys. Now they're $400 keys, right? So this may be true as we coat the car with these electronics. But also maybe they can be used as billboards for safety. Maybe it's advertising messaging. Who knows? A new service around that. So the thing I would encourage the curious and quirky audience to think about is how do you turn your product into a service? And maybe even how do you turn your service into a product? All right. So I want to pass this on now to, to Ginny Ertl. She is our change and transformation course leader. Ginny, you're up. Thank you, Brian. And what I will say is I don't have a football example. So just to let everyone know that. Um, <laughs> what I've been tracking the last couple of years, I'm, I'm very interested in the impact of COVID and the return to office. So I checked in on that last week because it, it changes all the time. And what I discovered was it's still changing and it's still uncertain. So, so there's a headline in the Wall Street Journal, surging COVID-19 puts an end to projected return to office dates. And this was an article in the Wall Street Journal by uh, Peter Grant. And, and the nature of the article was because of the Delta variant, companies that were returning to the workplace in September moved the date to January. And now because of the Omicron variant, major banks, technology companies, and firms have changed the January date. So there's still uncertainty when people will return to the office. So when you, when you look at what, what the statistics are, an average of 28% of the workforce returned last week as compared to 40% in December. So the numbers went up in December and because of Omicron, the numbers went down again to only 28% of the workforce returning to the office. So I look at this and, and we're two years into the pandemic and there is still uncertainty regarding the return to office date and actually return to office policies. And if you think of the terminology that's being used, you know, return, you know, that conjures up the notion that things will return to the way they were before the pandemic. But we know better than that. You know, the work from home genie has escaped out of the bottle and there's no way to get it back in. So now what? So with 72% of the workforce working from home, we need to look at this major shift through the lens of change management. So one of the key elements of change management or change strategy is to create a compelling need for change. It's a proactive approach to obtain buy-in and acceptance by proving the change state is actually better than the current state. Proving the value of the change is key 
because change is choice. And people don't merely change because you tell them to. They may robotically change at times, but their minds and their hearts aren't into it. So you really need to, to create a compelling need for change. So when you think about it, organizations have been trying to craft work from home policies for at least the last 25 years with very little success. And then a global pandemic occurs and overnight, work from home became the only way for office workers to work. And the great news is it worked. COVID created the compelling need to change and everyone had no choice but to change. So with 72% of the workforce working from home, it's time to look forward. Everyone now realizes that office is not synonymous with work. From a change management standpoint, if there's a desire to get people to return to the office, a strong case needs to be made. Now, what is the compelling need to change? Will productivity go up? Will employee engagement improve? Will creativity increase? Will, will it have a positive impact on the bottom line? Working in an office was once a given. It is now only where we worked, but how we worked. Now, the benefits of returning to the office need to be measured and proven. So, so my big question is, is there a strong enough case for change? Is there a strong enough case for bringing every office worker back into the office? So with that, I'm going to hand that over to our guru of future work, uh, Robin. Thank you, Jenny. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. The topic I wanna to focus on kind of picks up on, on where Jenny left off there. So as is well documented, there's been a surge of workers leaving their jobs as the pandemic wears on. And it's adding to employers' talent woes in the middle of what's an incredibly tight labor market coupled with surging demand for goods and services on the heels of lots of months of lockdown that we've, we've been through. Unfortunately, the response from many organizations has been somewhat predictable and in many instances suboptimal. Organizations are typically reacting to this great resignation, as it's been called, with increased pay and better, more personalized benefits. These are, in many instances, short-term solutions to a long-term problem. If your work is the same as everyone else's and pay and benefits are your only differentiator, then you will continue to churn through workers at an, in an ever-escalating war for talent and an ever-escalating cost structure. But what if instead you offered better work? With most organizations focusing on addressing the supply side of the equation, progressive companies like Providence Health and Genentech are recognizing the opportunity to use today's fight for talent as a catalyst to rethink and reorganize work. In an upcoming Sloan Management Review article, John Boudreau and I show how job deconstruction can help bend the demand side of that work equation through the creation of an agile, flexible, inclusive, and resilient new work operating system. Now, the most common challenge employers face in trying to attract and retain talent is assuming that the job itself is fixed and what needs changing is who does it. This is a false choice. Retain someone to continue doing the work or seek a replacement with comparable experience and expertise. The solution to this false choice is to deconstruct and reinvent the work itself, making it both more attractive to talent and of greater value to the organization by increasing the flexibility associated with how, where, when, and what the work performed is, while simultaneously identifying opportunities to shift away dull or dangerous work 
that is driving much of this turnover that we're seeing with the great resignation. Today, many organizations query this problem from the supply side of the equation. How do we find or build talent with the skills that fit with future automation? In a new work operating system that bends the demand curve, they would instead ask, how do we rebuild the work to optimize the combination of humans doing some tasks while automation does others? Supply-side thinking leads to asking, how can we get our jobs done with the right policy about remote, hybrid, on-site work to the points that Ginny was making? The demand-side thinkers instead ask, what new jobs can we reinvent or invent to optimally combine the tasks that should be done in each of those three different work arrangements? Reframing the question creates more options for making work more attractive, solving prominent dilemmas such as labor shortages and resignations. Now, let me pass you on to Peter, who has the latest on Web 3.0 developments. Great. Thank you so much. I love that idea of thinking on the demand side rather than just the supply side. And I've been looking into uh, the growing demand for what you might call Web 3 professional talent. We're facing not just a a transition in uh, the great resignation and, and other effects that are happening because of the global pandemic, but there's also a revolution taking place in technology with the way that businesses build on what they're now calling Web3. And there are really three big areas that are changing. One are the rise of crypto. And just to give you a sense of the scale, just two cryptocurrencies, Ethereum and Bitcoin, now have a market capitalization of over a trillion dollars and just seem to be growing. Another is the rise of NFTs, which are these non-fungible tokens. They've seen extraordinary growth over the last year, and all forecasts suggest that we'll see even greater growth as they move to the mass market and more and more brands start embracing NFTs to drive marketing campaigns and other sources of value. And then finally, we have the rise of metaverse platforms. And we've seen uh, the rebranding of Facebook and Facebook's announcement that it's going to spend billions of dollars in this space. And then just this past week, the announcement that Microsoft is going to buy this gaming company, Activation Blizzard, for over $70 billion to go head to head with Facebook. So huge amounts of money are flowing into what they now call Web3. Now, what's happening as a result is tremendous demand for professionals that understand how to drive businesses in this area. And uh, let me give you uh, a few examples. So going to the crypto space, we now have the rise of these exchanges, right, that allow you to trade in cryptocurrencies. One is Coinbase, which has become quite large. They're out in the market looking for an ecosystem platform operations leader, right? That's one example. PayPal is now launching a crypto offering, and it's now looking for a director of cryptography platform. So how do you secure these transactions? So the payment companies are deep into this. MasterCard and Coinbase just made an announcement. So the the credit card companies are looking in this area as well. And then we have Crypto.com, which is based out of Asia, also a very, very large crypto exchange. It's looking for a head of partnerships and ecosystem development. So all of these companies have very much of a network ecosystem platform perspective and are looking for professionals to drive that part of their business. Then you have the NFT platforms, and there's a ton of them. There's more than 100 now that have uh, arisen just in the last two to three years with a surge just last year. The largest is OpenSea. It now, uh, in 2021, 
did over $14 billion in transactions. That's up more than 600 times from the previous year. And so they're flush with money and they've just done another round. And surprise, surprise, what are they looking for? They're actually looking for an M&A integrations leader. <laughs> when you have money, <laughs> go spend it on acquisitions. And so, you know, you could probably find somebody who knows acquisitions and M&A really well. The question, though, is, is do they understand M&A in a Web3 world? So there's a challenge for these companies that, yeah, you can find M&A are experienced professionals, but you can't, it's harder to find those professionals that have deep understanding of how Web3 operates. And then finally, we have the metaverse, which is getting huge amounts of attention. And as you can imagine, Facebook is searching for a lot of talent. They have hundreds of job postings out to fill all sorts of roles. So they're looking, for example, a very uh, high-level role right now is a vice president for product marketing for the metaverse. And reading the job description is actually quite interesting. Then you have these um, more niche but growing metaverse environments where you can actually purchase land. And so there's one called Sandbox. It is looking for a global CRM manager. So there's a lot of data that's collected through this process and business relationships. They're hosting. So for example, Samsung is building a store in the metaverse in Sandbox. And so there's lots of brands now that are looking to enter this space and you need professionals that can manage these relationships. So huge, interesting space. So let me turn it over to Hari, who's our guru and leads this whole initiative. So we have to thank him for that. But he also has deep expertise in many areas, including agility. So with that, Hari, please take it away. Thank you, Peter. Love the introduction. I hope you keep repeating it every time, right? So I would love that. I wanted all the time today, but my colleagues insisted I only have five minutes. So here I go. So I'm going to discuss with you four different companies, actually. First, TikTok. Second, Grab, which is a Southeast Asian company. We're going to discuss Sony. We're going to discuss Apple. And I'm going to conclude with three points on what ties all of these organizations together in the strategies that they're deploying and some of the news that I've seen over the last 30 days. Now, let's start with TikTok. I'm pretty sure that you heard of TikTok. I know you read about it every time, but let me decode why it is such a compelling company to watch. First, TikTok wants to be the Shopify of social media. It wants to enable every single brand, company, any offering that you have as a plug and play e-commerce model on the back of a social media architecture. But that's not all. Have you heard of baked feta cheese? If you have not, that is something you should look at. So there is a lady called Jenny Harian. She's a Finnish food artist who put up the baked feta cheese recipe on TikTok. And guess what? It's a viral sensation. What does it do to TikTok? TikTok now wants to open 300 restaurants through the ghost kitchens model, including tie up with restaurants like Buca di Pepo, where suddenly they will reach roughly about 130 million active TikTok users through 300 restaurants with what they call as a pop-up food culture. Now, let me also share the power of TikTok. They were the most searched used platform more than Google for the first time in last year, 2021, right? So they are by de facto the most searched used platform on the planet. And here is an interesting fact. It is the second most effective book selling channel for Barnes and Noble. They are now getting into online education sector. So what causes a company that goes on a 10 second to 20 second viral 
video clip to suddenly metamorphosize into a massive digital e-commerce play. I'll come back to that. Now, let me take you to the second company called Grab. Grab is a very interesting Southeast Asian company that started as competition to Uber. It is a ride-hailing company. But guess what? They are the first neobank in Singapore with a partnership with Singtel that got them 90% share of a certain segment of customers in Singapore. That's not all. They recently started gaming. They're into streaming services and entertainment. And I'm pretty sure they'll make a play in cryptos and metaverse shortly. But they did an interesting acquisition in December called Jaya Grocers in Malaysia. What it allows Grab to do suddenly is integrate the entire value chain between financial services, entertainment, gaming, to grocery delivery, which, by the way, in retail is the holy grail because everybody wants groceries when you want them, not one day later, right? Which is what Amazon has been trying to do with Whole Foods for a long time, not fully successfully. But Grab is a very interesting company that does not actually think like a technology company. In one of the earlier episodes, I think Peter covered something called the race for the super app. Grab is right up there with Venmo, PayPal, and every other company that want to transform themselves as a super app company. And when Grab listed last month, I think on New York Stock Exchange, the entire credo of the CEO on why investors should flock to that company is because they want to be a super app company. Now I'm going to dial you back to a few years and many of the young watchers today may not know this. There was a product called Sony Walkman. Sony Walkman used two very archaic set of round looking cylindrical batteries that you either had to recharge or throw away. It had a headphone, by the way, which had wires in those days, right? But now let me play it out in comparison with Apple. Apple had obviously the iPod, the iconic product that disrupted all of music industry and and the players and everything else. Now imagine a Venn diagram. You have on the left circle, you have Sony Walkman. On the right circle, you have the iPod. At the intersection of this is an electric vehicle. Both Sony and Apple are pushing into electric vehicle zone, as you may, and they believe that they have the capabilities to transform or reimagine mobility. And I want to read out the statement by the CEO of Sony, which I think summarizes in true word what really agility means for these new age companies. With our imaging and sensing, cloud, 5G, and entertainment technologies combined with our content mastery, we believe Sony is well positioned as a creative entertainment company to redefine mobility, right? So they're reimagining how you would travel because of a certain set of capabilities that they believe they have, but that allows them to follow their customer wherever the customer goes. And that's exactly what Apple has done with the watch, with the iPods, with the iPads, with the desktops. They've disrupted music, financial services, game development, the way apps are developed and dispersed, and a whole range of sectors, right? My last example, therefore, I bring you to is really about why is a technology company thinking very differently to be almost like what we would call an old-fashioned conglomerate. But that's not true. Conglomerates in the past looked at every industry as a single marketplace. So if I was an automotive industry, that was a company that catered to automotive industry. If I was in, for example, salt, I would be in the food or the salt business. These new age companies do three things very differently. And let me summarize with that. First, they are able to integrate their business model regardless of the industries they play in very seamlessly through digital thinking, but they're able to follow their customers without boundaries. Here is an interesting fact. If you book an airline ticket and travel to another city, your travel touches 17 industries, different industries, including insurance. These companies are able to decode that and follow the customer across 17 
17 industries or whatever. That's what is creating value. And that's where the network effect comes in and the platform effect comes. Second is they build capabilities that are unnatural to them, right? So I would argue that Facebook building metaverse is pretty natural in our area of adjacency. These companies don't believe in areas of adjacency. They could pretty much get into pet foods or clinics while they're trying to do you know, a beverage company. So and it's very natural to do for them, right? The last one is they, they want to build a certain degree of leadership capabilities that are not industry-centric. This is, you know, Nestle hired somebody from Fresenius, which is a healthcare company. Nike's transformation came from a CEO who came from eBay. So there are the kind of leadership choices they make are also very unnatural to conventional industry thinking. And that is the true definition in how these companies stay agile. With that, I'm going to bring all my colleagues back on screen and open it a quick chat. We we have a few minutes left, I would say about four minutes, actually. So open it up questions to my colleagues. Jania, I have a question for you. I loved um, the way you described it, and I didn't realize that the number was so high for people still being back at home. So, <laughs> wow. Who do you find more resistant, the companies or the people to these changes? Uh, I think it's the people to the changes because there's now a new set of benefits that they're realizing, which the benefits of uh, working from home and the flexibility and the lack of commuting and the convenience of it, and, and also the level playing field, because now when everyone is virtual, you don't have that blended, some people in the office ignoring the people who are coming in virtually. So, so there's a whole host of things going on right now that people have to be very thoughtful about when deciding, is it appropriate for everyone to go back to the office or not? Or is it two days a week? So there's a lot to be worked through this, but I think the realization that there's another way is has to be taken into consideration. And, and it's a bit generational as well. I, I think there's a generation that, that has spent most of their career in the office who decided that's the only way. And I think there's a, the newer professionals coming up in the ranks are far more flexible and would rather work on the beach. And, you know, why not? <laughs> I have a quick question for Robin. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about your book? It sounds quite interesting. What was the origin? Who did you write it with? And what are the, the key topics you cover? Sure. Um, thanks for asking, Peter. So the, the book is called Work Without Jobs, and it will be published March 15th by MIT Press. And um, this is my fourth book. And all four of my books I've written with my dear friend, John Boudreau, who um, uh, is uh, Professor Emeritus at USC and, and from the Marshall School there. And it really is an extension of work we've done, gosh, since 2008 on the future of work. And what this book advocates for is a new work operating system that transcends our traditional models of a, a person matched to a job, so that one-to-one -one relationship, to in favor of the many-to-many -many between work and capabilities or skills. And it lays out through a series of case studies, we've, uh, we've tried to make all our books very case-based, through a series of case studies and examples, including the two I cited uh, a few minutes ago, Genentech and uh, Providence Health, how progressive organizations are really amplifying and upping their agility with this transition towards a more um, agile construct of skills and tasks versus merely limiting themselves to people in jobs. Do you look at platform companies as well? Because, you know, the gig economy, is that part of your analysis? 
It absolutely is, Peter, um, because when we think of the ecosystem for work, it's not one that is confined or limited to what exists within the boundaries of the traditional boundaries of the enterprise. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone. Really appreciate all our audience for listening in. Thank you to all of our course leaders for bringing the latest this month. We will catch you in February again. Stay safe, stay warm wherever you are, and stay curious. Thank you. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education.